You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Edward Chancellor, who is a columnist with Reuters and also the author of two books, one of which I have with me at the moment. It's called The Price of Time, The Real Story of Interest. Also the author of Devil Take the Hindmost, which I read many years ago. Couldn't find it, (laughs) but uh, I recall it fondly. Welcome, Edward. Thanks for having me. Now, I've been teaching finance for a long time, and I always start off my core finance class, which I'm currently teaching at Stanford, with the notion that finance is really the economics of time and the economics of risk, right? And that economics, narrowly understood, kind of assumes away things like time and risk. And anything which involves those two things is properly the province of finance. But, you know, finance like economics is also about pricing. In finance, right, we're pricing time and pricing risk. And I think that's why I love the title of your book, The the Price of Time. You've sort of, in a nutshell, described what the book is about. I mean, I think people in the world of finance forget about the time dimension. People in economics, I think it's a particular curse of the assumption of equilibrium that, again, people don't think about time in production. So time in production, in if you will, in the real world, and time valuing sort of intertemporal transactions in the financial world are are obviously related. The way I see it is that the financial world is a mirror of the real world. At least it should be a mirror of the real world in which you have a house made of bricks and mortar, and then you have the valuation of a house of equity and, and the mortgage and so on and so forth. And one should, you know, the finance is a sort of abstract picture and the interest is the one that sort of links finance or at least should link finance to the real world. I mean, I obviously learned about finance a long time ago, but no one ever actually mentioned this time function. So I think you, I think you must be serving your students well. Well, it, it could be that, you know, when we talk about finance, we're really talking about sort of two different domains, right? I mean, in the area of corporate finance, it's all about intertemporal trade, right? I mean, when Irving Fisher says that interest is, I like this, human impatience crystallized into a market rate, you can't get away from that when you're doing corporate finance, right? I mean, that's rooted in time value of money. It's rooted in these intertemporal trade-offs. But then you've got this whole other area of finance, which, you know, called macroeconomics, <laughs> which has to do with central banking and so forth. And I remember when I was in school and I took macroeconomics, I couldn't understand because at least the way it was taught, it was so completely divorced from the finance that we learned having to do with the decisions made by savers and investors and companies and so forth. I mean, it's just sort of, you know, let's just deal with these aggregates <laughs> and forget about sort of the micro foundations of what's happening. So is that, is that sort of part of the confusion? I'm a historian by training and, and I wasn't even doing, at university and postgrad, I was, wasn't even doing economics, I was doing intellectual history. And I say, so, so my, my learning of finance it informs what I know about macroeconomics. And one does get this feeling that there isn't a proper microeconomic foundation to, you know, the way modern macroeconomics is taught. And for me, that is a sign of how macroeconomics come sort of completely divorced, more or less, from the real world. And, you know, this book about interest is really an attempt to actually say to the economists and in particular the monetary policymakers, you know, wake up. There is a real world out there and these, you know, and the the rate at the, the interest is the most important price in the entire capitalist system, which goes in, you know, affects so many different things. I I started this book in 2015 
And I was discussing with a friend of my investor. And I said, you know, I've really come to the conclusion you can't understand the world of finance or the economy or even the politics of the modern world without understanding the impact that these extraordinary low interest rates are having. So it struck me as a subject that is vitally important, but not properly considered in modern economics. So as far as I understand, the macro models, the, you know, the DSGE models that have been used to set monetary policy making, they just sort of assume a time preference that crystallizes in patients as a sort of given. And they don't really think deeply. They don't really consider the possibility that the interest can be deviating away from its natural rate, except for movements in the price level up and down. And I, I think that is you know, just a staggering oversight, actually. Well, what I found interesting about your conclusion was that you know most economists, I think, have absorbed the key insight of, of Hayek, right? Which is that central planning has problems and that we need to allow information to be revealed through decentralized decision-making through supply and demand. They ignore that. And, and this is actually very important, well, really very important story, really. And I think it goes back to really differences that Hayek had with the the, the early Keynesians, but also with the monetarists like Milton Friedman. And so Hayek's early work in the 1920s was on monetary theory. And as I write in the book, you know, when he's really quite young in his 20s, he's elaborating the sort of the, the Austrian school theory of interest. He's taking it into a, a new area, which is should monetary policy, which was a, in the 1920s, a new idea. I mean, no one, <laughs> under gold status, you know, no one, no one had a monetary policy as such, except to redeem your, you know, redeem the central bank notes in gold. Um, so should monetary policy be directed at stabilizing the price level, what we would call inflation targeting? And Keynes came out strongly in favor of that idea. And actually the, the monetarists, Irving Fisher and others also did. Now, if you're going to be controlling the money supply, the interest rate that comes out of that is going to be a sort of residual. And if so, if you think the control of the money supply is all important, you are sort of de facto in favor of manipulating the interest rate. So I, what I think happened is, you know, you've got in America, you have the support in among some neoclassical economists for Hayek's ideas relating to the economy as, as a spontaneous, complex, emergent order at that that is difficult to control centrally. And yet, at the same time, no one has any problem with taking the most important price in the system the one that affects everything, namely the, the interest rate. No one's, and so it's somehow or other perfectly acceptable to tweak that for whatever your end. And that it's also somehow or other acceptable that people should think, you know, whether you know, the members of the Federal Open Markets Committee and then some of those members are drawn from the regional Fed banks, and they all have you know, enormous research department. Somewhere or other, there's an idea that you can gather a group of men and women around a table, and they could know what the correct interest rate should be. And yet we sort of understand that we couldn't gather a group of people around the table and tell them you know, what the price of a pencil would be without the market guiding them. So to me, there's this position of, of dissonance and it relies, in particular, both those groups not to look too closely at what they're doing or to consider it too closely. That seems to be more or less the state of the world. And what's interesting, and this you know, problem with academia today, is you know, once you build up huge sort of intellectual vested interest around a, a particular mode of thought, 
it then becomes subject to you know, sort of groupthink and cognitive dissonance. Whereas people like me who've, who really come from the investment world, you'll find in the investment world, people are far more open to thinking about these issues, partly because, you know, our, our homework is marked by whether we actually make money or not, rather than, you know, if we get a paper published in line with perhaps the prevailing dogma. That, that I've gone off, off piece a tiny bit. Well, but I mean, for those who advocate more central control of the supply of money and interest rates, I mean, they would say that left to their own devices, the decentralized activity of borrowers and lenders, asset buyers and sellers, you know, leads to instability, right? Leads to business cycles. And though there are obviously some problems, I think you highlight that it hasn't always been unanimous, this idea that cycles are uniformly bad. And in fact, you point to the work of Minsky and others and, and Schumpeter, of course. Can you make a defense of business cycles and bubbles and crashes? Is there an optimal amount of cyclicality in the asset prices? Yeah, well, you know, people started sort of observing business cycles, trade cycles in the 19th century, or at least writing about them. You can actually observe them in the 18th century. And what one of the cycles, the 10-year cycle is, is actually known, I don't know if it still is, but it used to be known as the Hugler cycle after a French economist called Clément Hugler. And I, I think I include a quote from him in the, it, from Hugler in the book where he says that the vitality of an economy is measured by the severity of its panic. Well, that, that might be getting more depressions. That might be getting a tiny bit far. However, when I'm thinking about the role of interest and, and how it affects capital allocation, how it contributes to the Schumpeter's forces of creative destruction, you can see that you know, if capital is trapped in a low-return activity, let's say a sort of clothing retail store that was in you know, it, doing well in the 1980s, but it's sort of gradually going downhill. But it is still using up you know, a lot of capital and workers and some real estate, so on. Then when the bus comes, if everything is left to its own devices, you know, that clothing retailer goes under and it's unpleasant, you know, to, to lose your job. But by and large, when you see a high turnover of job creation and destruction, it's also associated with rising productivity and the low churn rate, I think it's called, is associated with sort of weakening productivity growth. So yes, I, I think that a sort of clearing out of the system, and we obviously don't want it to be too severe. You don't want a great depression. Although even, even in the book, as you know, I, I say actually, <laughs> this drives the, the Keynesian economists, you know, because Keynesianism is sort of established during the Great Depression as a sort of anti-depression fighting force. And they, their main aim in life is to prevent unemployment. For them, the notion that a transitional rise in unemployment may actually be useful is complete heresy and is seen as being a sort of strange, a perverted form of sadism, <laughs> which I don't think it is. So I think, you know, that it's an inevitable feature of a capitalist or market-based system that you'd have these periods of boom and bust. I think that what's problematic, what we've been through in the last 25 years, is when the central bank plays a large role in the boom and bust, and then you get much greater volatility or, or extremes in the cycle. So is it a coincidence that the dot-com bubble, the internet bubble, was the most extreme on valuation measures, the most extreme speculative bubble the US had ever seen. And that, bear in mind that that you know, occurred, the last leg of the internet bubble occurred you know, after the collapse of the hedge fund long-term capital management in September 98. I mean, I think there would have been a good speculative bubble anyhow, because the internet's an exciting technology. So, you know, you can get technology bubbles for sure. I just don't think it would have gone so far had it not been for the impetus given by the Federal Reserve after 98 and, and then, you know, with a little 
icing on the cake with the so-called Y2K problem. Then we have an almighty credit bust in 2008, following quite a strong real estate bubble, sort of three standard deviations from the mean real estate bubble. That goes away, obviously painful. And then we get the so-called everything bubble. And we're still in the process, I think, of the unraveling the everything bubble. But if you look just in terms of aggregate wealth from the Federal Reserve's data on US household wealth, that the wealth bubble created, to my mind, largely by the low interest rates was greater than anything before. So I think that if you want to have a, a mild cyclical boom and bust, if you interfere with it too much with monetary means, you tend to get greater bubbles and potentially greater busts. So I, yeah, I, I think we've pushed these things too far. And, and part of my book is about, you know, is pointing out that it also has sort of ramifications on the real economy as well as on society at large. So we've sought to mitigate the downsides of these busts, but we've ended up sort of potentially with a bigger and bigger problem each time. So is the, is the proper analogy one like fighting forest fires, right? I don't know, it was Minsky or someone who said this, but the idea that, you know, if you suppress the small fires, then you're just creating kind of more dry tinder for the bigger fires. If that's the case, then it's kind of ironic because that sort of behavior is, I think we would describe it as behavior consistent with a very high discount rate, you know, where you're just so obsessed with, you know, eliminating the problem today that you're not really worried about the problem down the road, right? So the, the era of low interest rates is like policymakers' high interest rate, right? Yes, that's a very good point. See, when people, economists, early economists, started thinking about interest and you know where it came from and what it did and why it was lower in some countries than others, they decided that you know a country that was more civilized, frugal, thrifty, hardworking, like say Holland in the 17th and 18th century was deserving of low interest. The Austrian economist, 19th century Austrian economist, Eugen von Bavak, who, who wrote a long um, three-volume book on capital interest, he says the rate of interest mirrors the cultural state of nations. So this is, that was a sort of plausible thing to say in the 19th century. But what you're observing is that we had the policymakers, and to be fair, I think policymakers just reflecting the preferences of society, they act with, in a way, a very high discount rate because they just they'll do anything to smooth over a near-term problem. You know, the rationale for these extremely low interest rates, which lasted up until the beginning of last year, was the threat of very high unemployment in in two thousand nine. And I can understand that, but the discount rate, as you say, was in, in the motivating their actions was one that. It was so high, I didn't actually consider longer term effects. Now, you could say, you know, there's this very childish comment by Keynes where he says, in the long run, we're all dead. Whereas, in fact, a more accurate statement is that the long run is a succession of short runs. And in the, in the end, the long run is going to come and bite you in the ass, you know, so you, there's no avoiding that. So we had this policymaking that is myopic, i.e. high discount rate, which has actually delivered us a very low rate. And we can't actually say, I think fairly, that low rate is a sign of, I don't think that the lowest rates in history are the sign of the most civilized society in history. Let's put it that way. But in the book, you, you highlight how the issue of interest has been a topic of discussion since the beginning of time, right? I mean, first of all, you point out that the standard story of the origins of money is misguided, right? And that, you know, we had credit before we even had barter, right? I mean, credit's been around forever. And there have been these debates over, you know, whether high interest rates are good or low interest rates are good. And of course, if you are a debtor, you're going to have a different position than if you're a creditor. And so, you know, high interest rates have winners and losers. Low interest rates have winners and losers, kind of like price of oil, right? Price of oil goes up, sellers are better off, buyers are worse off and vice versa. But there's a difference there, right? Because you know, with, with oil, I think we, we could all argue that if, you know, the cost of energy capture goes down, that's going to be 
better for everybody. So why wouldn't the same logic apply with interest? I mean, when you look at the interest rate, you know, it was 20% in Babylon and, you know, it's been declining ever since. I mean, why isn't that just a story of progress? And, you know, ultimately getting it down to zero would be like, hey, this would be like a nuclear fusion, right? We could just create energy costlessly. It sounds like a wonderful thing. Yeah, it sounds like a wonderful thing unless one actually thinks about it. You know, there are, as you say, winners and losers from interest rate. You know, sometimes a high interest rate you know, benefits the creditor at the expense of the borrower. And most of the early thought on interest, you go back to you know, the Bible or to you know, the Greek philosophers like Aristotle is, is on this sort of inequity of interest. And, and that it's a fair argument that if you live in, a, in an economy, in an agrarian economy, or, or even just a mildly commercial economy, you charge high rates of interest, the debt can compound, and very high rate. In, and if you've got debt compounding faster than your growth rate, then of course, as you know, you get into a sort of debt trap, both for an individual and for a, a society as a whole. Those criticisms of usury are to some extent valid. However, to go back to what we were talking about right at the beginning, Aristotle, who had, I think, the greatest influence on views of interest, both in his own day, but right through to the medieval church, which really took Aristotle's views sort of lock, stock, and barrel. Aristotle's essential oversight, he says, you know, if you lend someone money and demand more back than you've given, you are um, committing an injustice. And then he goes on saying you know, money was created for exchange rather than to be used for gain. But what Aristotle is, is completely ignoring is you know, his title of the book, you know, the, the price of time, the value of time, and why time has a value both to the lender and the borrower. And therefore, you know, as with any transaction, and this point, as you know, I make is, it's important that it should be well balanced. But what, what people haven't considered enough is the consequences of the ultralyrics. And one of the points I make was the less well off you are, the more of your financial wealth is held on, on deposit. Whereas the better off you are, the better, you know, if you're a high net worth individual, you probably have very low proportion of your net worth on deposit at the bank. I remember, you know, 10 years ago, speaking to a friend of mine in Boston who had got a, a job at JP Morgan, the high-end wealth manager. And she said, well, what we're doing really is we're taking people with $20 million and putting them in the index and leveraging them up with $30 million. So, I mean, yeah, so that's nice when interest rates are low because, as I point out, the super rich can become even more super rich, but it actually doesn't help. Those low interest rates helped the working people insofar as they lowered unemployment in the aftermath of the crisis. I think we can take that as a given, but they then suffered from the very low interest rates by and large. And the wealthier people, and particularly the older generation, people who own their own homes, people who had their own savings, did relatively better off. It's interesting. I think, who was it that said that, you know, their goal was to the death of the rentier? Was that, was that Keynes? I forget, but I mean, it seems like... It, you know, that's Keynes. You know, the ordinary person is now the rentier and the wealthy are the ones that have portfolios that are inversely correlated with the interest rate, right? Yeah, they benefit indirectly from financial engineering and by financial engineering, we would include you know, companies that are borrowing to replace their shares with cheap debt, what was called by the ugly words of de-equitization. Then you've got you know, the private equity boom. And again, you, you know, to, to have access to private equity, unless you're getting it from a managed pension fund, you have to be very rich. So that was the sort of my argument. And I had this chart, uh, which almost too good to be true. So you, Unless you want to believe it, but is you know showing the I think it's the, the share of, of income of the top one percent uh, and the total return of, of the long treasury over a sort of forty year period and it seems to sort of match up quite well. 
And that sort of makes sense given that, you know, the great bull markets, you know, of the last four decades were sort of driven by this ever declining interest rate and also by a lot of financial engineering. And, you know, we, during that period, we shifted to paying senior executives with stock options and stock related compensation. And of course, our financial system, financial services industry also got a lot larger and a lot richer. I was wondering if you could talk about financial repression a bit, right? Because I think for people who are familiar with the concept, we think of China, right, as the classic example, at least classic modern example of financial repression. We don't think of the United States when we think of financial repression. But I think you're arguing that what we did for the you know last 20 years or so is effectively financial repression, Chinese style, but in a very different way. Yeah, so financial repression is the term given to maintaining interest rates below the level of inflation. And it was devised by a Stanford economist. So Ronald McKinnon devised it. And then with another Stanford guy called Shaw, I think in the, in the late 60s, early 70s, and they, they were thinking about emerging markets. They were thinking about Latin American countries. And they were saying, if you keep interest rates, if you manipulate or if you get the central bank, politicize central bank to keep rates too low, then certain things will happen. And they say, you know, one of the things will happen will be that credit is allocated by the government to those that are favored. So you get, as, as we were talking earlier, you get the winners and the losers. The other, they argue, is, you know, you get sort of lower growth because you know, the interest rate is not allocating capital, which we discussed. And, and the idea is, I mean, you're subsidizing the sort of state-owned enterprises or the preferred enterprises, right? Because when you keep the interest rates low, then the demand for capital goes up and there's, you need to have some kind of rationing scheme, right? Yeah. And, and it could also be associated, financial repression is associated, I think, in McKinnon's work with a sort of boom-bust sequence. And then I've got this chapter, which I call sort of financial repression with Chinese characteristics in which, you know, I argue that really China's economy and financial system has been shaped by this long period of keeping interest rates relatively low. I mean, relatively low compared to China's economic growth or nominal economic growth. And that has seen a transfer of wealth from domestic savers who had their money in banks and has been initially, the you know, first part of the financial pressure in China was keeping the renminbi low relative to dollar to boost exports. You actually made Chinese consumers less well off. And then in time, you inflated this, you know, this epic real estate bubble accompanied by an equally epic credit boom and investment boom. So I think that the financial repression in China has been highly distorted. But what we have had here is, yeah, since the global financial crisis, or you could even go back a bit earlier to, to the end of the dot-com bus. If you, if you look at, say, that, you know, the Fed funds rate relative to inflation, you will find that really for most of this century, it has been below. So that you could say the period, you know, 2003 to four was financial repression and the later period. Now, we've already mentioned the sort of the distributional consequences. I think that this period of financial repression in the West, US and UK and, and much Europe is slightly different from the emerging market financial repression because it's been associated with the buildup of the financial engineering and, and the buildup of debt and these speculative bubbles. Whereas the, the financial repression in the West that is most commonly spoken about is the keeping interest rates low during periods of the post-war period, and that being used to pay off the government debt. So I think roughly it's the rule of thumb. I'm going to say that you know, from 1945 to 1980, roughly half the war debts of the US and the UK were paid off by inflation. So that's a different, whereas the financial repression recently has been associated, as you know, with, I'm going to sort vaguely, of, with, 
of the doubling of debt, of government debt in the US and the UK relative to GDP. Now, we might be in a new phase, we get phase two of the financial repression, which, you know, you could say we entered last year as inflation took off, is probably more akin to the earlier one, which is you pretend that you're worried about inflation, but in reality, you keep inflation higher than the interest, so you keep the interest rate below inflation, and you let the high inflation burn off some of the debt. One of the problems of that is if you want to avoid the financial engineering, we've talked about the buybacks and private equity stuff, the state is going to have to step in and limit the activities of the financial sector. In, you know, there's going to be a change of heart about financial engineering. So I think that the new phase of financial repression will be the government hindering the financial sector from using this cheap money to lever up, and then in place, actually directing capital itself to its own favored ends, whether it's you know, energy transition, you name it. That's just an idea. I mean, that, it's more elaborate. You know, the, I have a friend who's a investment strategist up in Scotland called Russell Napier, and he's really spent a lot of time writing about financial repression. And his his argument, I think it's quite quite robust, is that you know, in the post-war period, the in Europe, the state played a very large role in allocating capital. So apparently in France in the 1950s, you know, three quarters of the capital of the credit in France was directed by French state-owned enterprises. So it gets you sort of quite close to the sort of Chinese situation. Well, I mean, it seems like the amount of debt that we have is gotten to almost unsustainable levels, right? I mean, it's, it's astonishing how much the increase we've seen, but the government is limited in its ability to inflate away the debt now, because it seems like in combination with the fed, the government is paying, you know, these short-term rates, right? It's all of the, the government bonds are owned by the fed. And then the fed is, is paying out the, interest to the depositors. And so when the interest rates go up, their cash flow, <laughs> the government interest payments go up. Yeah. So from a sort of corporate finance perspective, the quantitative easing, leaving aside whether it had an impact on inflation or whether it had an impact on this financial energy, but pretty from a sort of corporate finance perspective or government finance perspective, to, to swap out your long-dated debt at the lowest rates in history, and issue in effect, short date, overnight lending. Yeah, very nice when interest rates are zero, but you're creating huge problems in store. And you see that in, you know, in, in Britain. So the British government, the Bank of England borrowed about, it expanded its balance sheet to the tune of over £850 billion. Pounds. And it was borrowing, uh, it was sort of in effect paying interest on reserves at 10 basis points on that 850 odd billion pounds. So, of course, you know, of course, the government spent a lot of money. I mean, you couldn't, to the sort of profligate Johnson era when he was prime minister, open the paper every day and there was another government spending. But your money was free, as you said. You know, who's not to like it? Let's spend as much. Who, who cares? You know, resources are not constrained. Now it's changed. You know, now interest rates, I think, you know, bank rates gone up to, I think, 5.5% or 5.75% today. And the cost of government debt servicing has gone up to 10% of revenues, you know, at a time when the, the bank rate is actually still below its post-war average. And then we have, you know, Britain and America, but more in Britain than America, we then have this other commitment against inflation, which is these in inflation index bonds. So I think the British, I think off the top of my head, have about 20% of their government debt in inflation index bonds. So there you actually have to pay inflation. <laughs> I think there's been surprisingly little commentary on it, bearing in mind it was the Bernanke Fed's decision in 2008 to start paying interest on reserves. So, you know, what are they gonna what are they gonna do? <laughs> are they gonna stop paying? I don't know, are they gonna put, you know, ramp up the reserve requirements on the bank to sort of freeze that money? 
Are they going to do a forced swap? Something's going to happen to that money. It's probably not going to be very good for bank shareholders. That's my guess is, you know, everyone will say, well, hang on a sec, you know, the banks, didn't we bail them out in 2008? Why should we be paying them all this money? So yeah, the QE from a government finance perspective is an unmitigated disaster. The, the smart thing to do, which some countries did do, they went out and borrowed a hundred, you know, you wanted to issue hundred year bonds, 2%, you know, 2.5%, more than the 10 basis points you're paying, yeah, you know, through the Bank of England's QE, but this locks you in at the low, at very, very low rates for a century. That really would have been sort of cheap capital for the government spent, but they didn't do it again. I, I was talking to one of your colleagues here, John Cochrane, and we were talking about this, and he thinks that actually, again, it was a sort of myopia thing, that everyone liked to borrow, the governments liked to borrow at these very low short-term rates, and they were encouraged to do so by this, with the central bank activity, whereas actually a prudent body politic w- would have actually just done exactly the opposite. They would have... Uh, well, particularly if we could have sold those bonds to the... Chinese central bank, because then we could inflate away the obligations to the Chinese consumer, right? Yeah, but I don't know if they would have bought 100-year bonds. That would have been a different issue. But one aspect of financial repression, which is sort of worth bearing in mind, is we've talked a bit about the inequality that followed, the growth in inequality that appears to be linked to some of the low interest rates. Now, the investors perforce have some money in government bonds. So actually the financial repression will contribute to the euthanasia of the rentier, which is what what Keynes wanted. Now, could you talk a bit about the Japanese experience? Because it would seem that the events of Japan post real estate bubble would cause a monetary theorist to question some of the fundamental assumptions of their models. And yet it, it didn't seem to, it didn't seem to have much impact on orthodoxy. What can we learn from that, that experience? I mean, one of the things that, that I found interesting that you pointed out was that savings is, can sometimes be like a given good, right? In that we think that when interest rates are lower, people will save less, but sometimes when interest rates go down, people wind up saving more because they know that if they're expecting to meet some future obligations and the lower the interest rate, the more you have to set aside, right? Yeah. And actually there is an ECB member called Eve, Eve Mao. She refers to it as, as Ricardian, a Ricardian angst, <laughs> which is, and I think this is particularly relevant. I mean, it's relevant to some extent to Japan, particularly to Germany. Because the Germans, unlike we speculative gambling Anglo-Saxons, Germans tend to, even wealthy Germans have quite a lot of their money on deposit. And they actually, as you probably know, have a lower house ownership rate. So they actually felt the pain of these low interest rates. Where, you know, if you were in, say, Britain or America, you were getting less money on your, in your deposits. That was a pain. Hey, what do you care? Your stock market account was up, you know, 10, 15% year after year, your house. And you got a nice mortgage. And you got, and you got a nice cheap mortgage. And I think you, you see in some places, I think in Germany, in response to the low interest rates, in, in others, a decline in savings or weak savings. And there is incidentally, as I cited, you know, an excellent book by the great Swedish economist, Gustav Kassel, called The Nature and Necessity of Interest. And he argues that if you take the interest rate down below a certain level, it actually doesn't make sense to save anymore because it's not compounding like as it had done previously. So you might as well eat the seed corn, so to speak. But then you don't see that in all countries. It's more of more of an Anglo-Saxon thing than a than a German. But to go back to Japan, I mean, what was specifically you were thinking about Japan that hadn't really been incorporated or taken on board of Japan's experience? Well, they, I mean, they cut interest rates down to virtually nothing and they weren't getting the economic growth that they expected. 
and they weren't getting the inflation <laughs> that they expected. Instead, you wound up with all of these zombie companies that just kept rolling over their debts. So the American economists, including Bernanke, there's, you know, their argument was, oh, well, they just should have started earlier. Japan should have started earlier. They should have gone bigger. You know, that was the rather patronizing response of the American economics and monetary establishment towards Japan. One thing <laughs> Japanese were worried about, initially at least, uh, was it you know, reflating their bubble economy. And, and you know, the Japanese did seem to understand by the late 80s and then into the early 90s that the very low interest rates or decline in interest rates in the um, second half of the 80s in Japan, in part you know, intended for a government direction to weaken the yen to boost exports, that that had contributed to the bubble economy. They didn't want more of that. Having said that, you know, if just you just look at the um, Bank of Japan's rate, you know, look at chart, and you see it, it did come down very quickly and it stayed low for very long. And the Japanese were the first to sort of invent the quantitative easing. They were first to go to zero rates and they last, <laughs> the last to emerge from negative rates. The relationship between inflation and interest is not as straightforward as people surmise. If a low interest rate encourages leverage, then the more leverage you have, the greater the leverage tottering over an individual or household or an economy as a whole, the more the potential deflation repressure is there. Because you, or if you borrow, if a household borrows a lot and brings forward its consumption, then you're going to have, you know, weaker consumer driven inflation going forward. If companies are levered too much, they're going to be paying back their debt, which is what happened in Japan with the so-called balance sheet recession. The very low interest rates can be a form of loan forbearance. In a, and, and Japan, I think it probably was quite rightly criticized Japanese authorities for uh, not grasping the nettle of bad debts in the banking system. So Japan had, you know, two banking crisis in uh, 98, and I think the second one was around 2002. And it really wasn't until after the second one that the banks were properly recapitalized. But what some economists were beginning to notice in the 1990s was that Japan was having this zombie company phenomenon. Uh, and there was an IMF paper, which I read and cite in the book, called, you know, Unnatural Selection, and uh, which was about the rise of the corporate zombie in Japan. And a zombie, as you know, is a company whose profits are not high enough to service the interests, even when interest rates are very low. And so I, I argue, again, it's quite controversial, not everyone accepts it, but I argue that the very low interest rates contribute to the zombie phenomenon and that the zombie phenomenon is in itself rather deflationary or disinflationary. Now, your colleague, Sean Cochran, the other side of that is actually when you start raising rates, uh, you actually then encourage inflation. He thinks of it purely from a sort of fiscal idea. What we've been talking about recently, you know, just if you raise interest rates, the debt becomes less sustainable, the less the government debt becomes less sustainable, the less sustainable the government debt is, uh, the more risk there is of, of inflation being used, financial repression to pay off the debt. But actually in the, in, in the practical world, <laughs> all these British homeowners, they've got these massive debt, the house price is much more inflated here than in America, probably with the exception of the coastal areas. Um, and households have much more debt than they did in the 1980s. And they're borrowing short term. If you're a household and you borrow short term, and interest rate and, and the, the basic mortgage rates have gone from you know, 2% two years ago up to 6 or 7%. So they've tripled. Now, you, you can be pretty sure that workers are going to start going back to their employees and say, hang on a sec, I can't hack a 6% pay rise. I need 12 because otherwise I can't pay my mortgage. So it, I think the sort of the, the low rates can actually contribute to a sort of downward spiral of inflation and, and the higher rates can actually, and in a way, 
you might say even sort of paradoxically, uh, actually feed through to inflation pressures. And not, not at a certain, you know, I mean, you raise the interest rates high enough, <laughs> you can bring the system down and that brings inflation under control. But I think when people listen to conversations like this, they come away with the idea that monetary policy is a very complex phenomenon, right? And that the instruments don't always have the impact that you expect them to have. Do you think that policymakers have sort of an echo chamber to some degree? I mean, you have a background in intellectual history, right? And you were a practitioner. Do you think that those backgrounds allowed you to perhaps see things that might not otherwise be obvious if you are schooled within? Well, I think, you know, first of all, one has an advantage if one's a historian, because, you know, historians just, so to speak, have no discipline. <laughs> we're, we're magpies. We can go and sort of look wherever we want and, and think in a way, whatever we want. And so we're not sort of bound by dogma or, you know, as they say, the canonical thought. My, I suppose my view is that uh, I, I can understand it, that, that monetary policy is immensely complex. They're, they're setting themselves too difficult a task. And so having set themselves too difficult a task to, to, to discover the true rate of interest, they have simplified it by saying, okay, we, we can tell it just by movements in the price level. But if they're wrong, they're going to be very difficult to change the direction of monetary policy made because what are you going to consider? You're going to consider asset prices. I mean, I, my argument would be for a start, you might as well just have a broader remit and not just look at a movement in short-term inflation. I mean, my own preference is, you know, we're talking about you know, the economy being a complex, spontaneous order. And my own preference would be to move away from monetary policy making and to return the setting of interest rates to the markets. And if you want to deal with the aftermath of bus, then use fiscal policy. I mean, and the central bankers would agree with that argument. And the, but then the question is, how do you dispense with the interest rate setting of the central bank? Because in the old days, in the 19th century, when central banks' only duty was to redeem its notes of gold, the market rate, the interest rate is set automatically without you couldn't have an active monetary policy. I think once you move away from the gold standard, you then open up the possibility and indeed the necessity of an active monetary policy because you have this fiat money whose creation is potentially unconstrained. And I'm not advocating a return to the gold standard, but in the final paragraph of the postscript of the book, I discuss, you know, how the impetus behind the cryptocurrencies, aside from you know, mere speculation, was the idea that a cryptocurrency uh, might become like a private money described in Hayek's book, The Denationalization of Money. That's one idea. Perhaps it will fly. The alternative idea suggested by a friend of mine, um, Thomas Meyer, who's the former chief economist of Deutsche Bank, is that a central bank digital currency could be constructed in such a way that it only increased by a certain increment every year, roughly in line with your, if you will, your targeted growth in nominal GDP. And if that increment of growth of the central bank digital currency uh, was fixed, in effect, in law, couldn't be played with, and that the digital currency would, in effect, replace conventional bank deposits. Then you could have a system that would actually, a monetary system in which the interest rates were actually set by the market because the interest rate, you would no longer have central banks. So you would no longer have commercial banks just creating money out of thin air with loans we're, we're through their act of lending, so-called you know, fountain pen money. 
they would have uh, a bank to make a loan would have to borrow, you know, central bank digital currency, CBDC. And, and that would create a rate of interest. And, uh, you know, how, how can one make the transition? And one of the things I've discovered about, you know, writing about finance for nearly 30 years is that it's hardly worth having new ideas because, you know, there's the conservatism uh, of the world is so great that it's very hard to get them taken up. So I prefer to describe rather than create uh, solutions. But there's Thomas's solution as a potential way of returning to a market rate of interest. And I have to say, the alternative is that if we continue with the current system, we will have continuing incremental growth in the state, in, in the central bank's involvement in the financial system and in the economy at large. And that's one of the things I write about in my last chapter, that the period of, of low interest rates, ultra low interest rates, was associated by central banks getting into areas that they had never been considered proper before. You know, the well, you know, starting in Japan with sort of corporate governance, and then you know you blink and it becomes you know social justice and and environmental concerns and so forth. So you, you know society or civilization it is it's slightly at a crossroads, which we either decide whether we stick. <laughs> To a decentralized system, or whether we move towards recentral, you know, centralization, which potentially is is more centralized in various ways than anything that the Soviet Union faced. So it it, it is rather a, a crux. And I think that going back to what we were speaking earlier, it's a shame that you know the economists who sort of consider themselves to be in favor of markets and a market distribution of resources, they don't see the elephant in the room, I think, Which, namely, you know, the role of interest and the importance of it. Well, Edward, um, thanks so much for joining me. I think you are carrying on the tradition of Badgett and uh, Irving Fisher and Hayek and a whole bunch of other thinkers in this domain. The book is called Price of Time. The Real Story of Interest. Check it out. And of course, the old book on speculation, Devil Take the Hindmost. It's also out there. Check that one out too. Thanks so much. Thanks, Greg. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.